to a brand new edition of Problematic Women. I'm Virginia Allen. And I'm Kristen Eichhammer. And today, <laughs> we're kind of reflecting on how crazy of a weekend we had, it obviously. It was a crazy weekend. Like, there was a lot on Twitter. <laughs> there was a lot on Twitter, all this gay pride stuff. Dude, I I know. Yeah. And Trump being indicted again. Yeah. Like... What's yeah, going on in the world? He needs a passport at this point for the, the courts. But anywho, um, critics are, you know, calling the Biden administration out for their their gay pride celebration that they hosted on the uh, White House lawn. And we'll get into that a lot more later. But the biggest reason people are calling him out is for his violation of the U.S. flag code. Um, for those of you who didn't see it, he basically displayed, displayed a pride flag in the middle of the White House columns with two American flags flanking it on either side. Um, as a president, he should, you know, be pretty familiar, or at least his advanced team should be pretty familiar with yeah. flag code. Like, maybe that's a good thing to be aware of. Mm -hmm. um, but it is a major violation. Um, for those of you not super familiar with um, U.S. flag code, yeah, that's okay. I'm, I'm not aware, so you got to educate me, Right, Kristen. like we can totally criticize the president, but for those regular, you know, everyday Americans that just want to learn, um, <laughs> there's a lot going on in it, actually. There's more than seven sections. I think there might be nine, actually, total. Wow. Um, but the specific section that he violated is technically called position and manner of display. And this basically <laughs> lays out everything you need to know about displaying an American flag from where you put it on your car to where you have it flying um, at half mass, um, where you put it on your porch, and also where you display it at the White House, wow. a.k.a., you know, the president of America's house. Um, <laughs> and the major violation here is that you cannot have a flag in the center of two American flags. When you have an American oh, wow. flag fl uh, like displayed, it must be front and center. If you haven't seen it on Twitter, that's not the case. And a lot of people wow. are trying to justify the display um, by saying that, you know, there's an American flag on top of the White House um, that is always flying. And so technically that was higher than the pride flag itself. Okay. But that's kind of a cop-out argument and really not the point. A little bit point. of a workaround. Yeah. What, yeah. Are, what are your thoughts, though? I mean, I, I think it's fascinating that they would not have seen that this was an issue in advance. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's, quite, it's a quite simple fix. You just put the American flag in the middle. And, I mean, in some ways, if they wanted, then they could have had two gay pride flags on yeah. either side of the American flag. And people, um, for sure, would have still, I'm sure, had things to say about that. But <laughs> it sounds like technically that would have been within the proper code. So you, you have to... I, you know, as as American people, we should follow the code. But if our White House is not honoring the flag code, then it's like, OK, well, who else is going to be expected to honor it and follow it? So uh, just, I think, a reminder of the fact that so many of these far, far left woke policies are affecting so many aspects and honestly, sometimes kind of blinding people. Yeah, no. And I think what's really important to remember here is, you know, negligence is one thing, but if it seems intentional, it very well might be. Mm -hmm. And I hate to say that, but um, just further evidence, Senator Roger Marshall, um, he actually called it a disgrace and him and along with other people piggybacked on that and really criticized Biden. Biden's response was posting the flag, the pride flag alone in that central position with no American flags. He wow. totally cropped it out. And I mean, it's it's hard. I'm not I'm not trying to, you know, make you mad at the president this morning. But um, I mean, people died for that flag yeah. and they're literally 
like go check out the flag code. It's very interesting. It tells you everything from it, the last time it was updated, which was 1960 when we hmm. added um, Hawaii as a state. So that added mm-hmm. the 50 stars. Um, the original, that's an amendment. So the original flag code actually only has 48 stars. So before Alaska and Hawaii. And then the other um, areas that are kind of interesting, it's actually really funny um, because like our flag is only nine years older than the moon landing, which I just thought was really crazy. Oh, but wow. um The other big thing is, you know, outside of naval officers, uh, those conducting um, a a church-like thing on a naval ship, there should never be a flag, not a U.N. flag, not another country's flag at the same height um, at the same size as an American flag. The only time a flag can be flown above the United States of America's flag is if it's on a naval ship um, for a church – session i don't know i don't know what denomination necessarily but that is literally it so um obviously that wasn't happening um but you know the more you know about flags definitely go check it out the more you know all right well Kristen, tell us what more we need to know about today's show what do we have queued up yeah up on today's problematic women special guest nikki neely is joining us to share her story of fighting for truth and parents rights and to share why the left is labeling her organization a hate group Plus, the White House banned a group of trans activists from the White House. We explain why. And according to Forbes magazine, Taylor Swift is stimulating the economy in a huge way right now. Plus, we'll be crowning our Problematic Women of the Week. Each week on Problematic Women, we sort for the news to find those stories of particular interest to conservative-leaning or problematic women, those whose views and opinions are often excluded by those on the so-called feminist left. If you are a problematic woman or just someone who supports independent women, please consider supporting us by leaving a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen and encouraging others to subscribe. It really does make a difference. All right. Let's get to it. So, Kristen, you may have experienced this uh, as an athlete and being on soccer teams. But you know how whenever you are on sports teams, there was like that one teammate that you were just really glad that they were on your team because they were really good and they were intimidating and you just thought, I don't want to go up against them. (laughs) Yes, those are always the best people to like bring on the field with you. Exactly. Like I'm so good. I get to lock arms with you and I don't have to compete against you. Well, that is the way that I feel about Nikki Neely, who is joining us here on the show today. Nikki is the head of a parents' rights organization called Parents Defending Education. Nikki, thanks for being with us here on Problematic Women. Thank you for having me. (laughs) Well, this is going to be a fun conversation because we're going to talk about some of the wild, crazy world uh, that is defending parents' rights. It shouldn't be so wild and crazy, but here we are with the left really, really targeting parents. But before we get into all that craziness, um, how how exactly would you describe and would you describe a little bit of your journey of coming into this space of being an advocate and really being a fighter? Sure. So I, I mean, I guess to take a step back, I'm a recovering libertarian. I started my career early at Cato (laughs) and then I had kids. I right now have an eight-year-old and a nine-year-old. And so I have skin in the game, to be quite honest, right? I mean, you hear and you see about all this madness that's going on in school. And I think for many people, um, they had a window into that, what was taking place in schools for the first time during COVID when everything went virtual, Zoom school is in people's living rooms and people were horrified that what they were seeing their kids learning or not learning. My children were in a Montessori school at the time, so we didn't have problems, but 
all of my friends who have kids the same age were complaining to me about what they were seeing and hearing. And at the time when COVID hit, I was actually running a campus free speech group. And so I was working um, with college students. I was partnering with organizations like the Leadership Institute, Young America's Foundation, um, Turning Point groups like that. And obviously I couldn't sue universities during COVID because I don't know if you remember that, like that March when everybody went home for spring break and then they couldn't actually go back to campus to even get their stuff. It was just like, they were just gone forever. So it felt a little bit petty to sue a university over free speech stuff when no one was physically on campus. Um, but one thing that had kind of struck me about that whole period and even working on campus speech is you look at polling about how students feel about the First Amendment and students don't like it. They don't understand mm-hmm. it. And it always struck me that well, I don't think students are getting a proper civics education to start with, because if you get to college when you're 18 and you think, well, no, the hate speech is not protected by the First Amendment, then something's gone wrong earlier on. And so it always struck me that there was a downstream effect. But um, right after George Floyd's murder, obviously schools then really leaned into this whole space. And we started seeing districts around the country sending out all district emails. We are so systemically racist. We commit to being an anti-racist district. And I think a lot of parents stepped back and said, did you just call me a name? Like, what is going on here? And I think back to when I was growing up. I mean, I was in college during 9-11. Um, I was in, you know, I was, I was a kid during when the Challenger blew up, when like the Gulf War hit and districts used to not talk about politics. And now it was all of this virtue signaling. And one thing that was interesting to me as we have been working on this issue over the past couple of years is it wasn't just that a flip or a switch was flipped after George Floyd. There was a lot that had been taking place for many, many years before that And then they just, the mask slipped. They're like, oh, well, here's our five-year equity plan we've been working on. And so, again, much of this had been in play, just parents were not aware of it. And even after school started to reopen, families continued to be kept at arm's length. And it feels like there has been a sea change in that families used to partner with schools, with principals, with districts um, to get a child, you know, to have a good outcome for a child to thrive. And right now we see it being the default setting is that families are hostile, that schools are a safe place, but families are not supported. And mm-hmm. that to me is a really astonishing change that we see in schools, that we even see in the medical field where, you know, schools are making assumptions about families, about parents' ability based on superficial things like religion, on politics. And, you know, we're still a country of laws. We believe in due process. And if you think I'm an unfit parent, certainly there's a process to go through that. It's a really, really serious you know, thing to pull a child from a family, put them into the foster care system. And that's why there's a court system, there's child protective services. This is not just, and should never be just the math teacher saying, you know what, she's a Catholic. I don't think that she's a good mom. I don't think, I think of her kids gay that she shouldn't have them. And so just watching what has happened to school in what feels like a very short period of time, to me feels like an acute crisis and something that we you know, really requires an all hands on deck effort. I think it's so interesting that you bring up that, um, you know, removing kids and putting them in the foster care system. I mean, that law in California just came out that basically will um, uh, charge parents with child abuse um, if they're not affirming their gender identity. Um, And I think to your point, there was this huge shift during COVID and parents got more involved. I remember growing up too, you know, my parents helped me with my homework. My parents really did understand what was in the agenda. I think that was the point of parent-teacher conferences. I just remember getting the day off, right? But how, I guess, um, have you seen the change as a a parent um, with that transparency between parent and teacher? And um, has that, I mean, obviously it's inspired your passion for for the justice system, or sorry, for justice um, and uh, school um, related issues, but how has that maybe influenced you? 
Yeah, no, it's a great point. And it's so interesting because it is, we as parents get just little dribbles of information. Um, my children were all in Arlington Public Schools for a year and we would get an email at the end of every week. Here's what we learned about. We learned about the 60s. And I want more than that. Like what part of the 60s? Did we learn about the Beatles or did you learn about the weather underground? Like there's a big difference. And right, and, and, and this is like, it, it's not a partisan issue, right? It's that we know children do better when their, when their families are involved in their lives. If my children are learning about England. Like we'll make bangers and mash. We'll watch a movie. We'll listen to music, right? Like I want to really bring these lessons to life. And if I'm not involved in this, then I can't help out. I can't supplement. I can't, I can't, you know, go on a special field trip with them. Um, and so that is concerning, right? That, that it's, it's when parents have gone to their district and said, Hey, I'd like to know what the books are. Then they're being told, I mean, you know, to their face or in email, actually, because, you know, in some schools, you still can't even enter the school building, um, file a public records request how is that supposed to make somebody feel, right? You're kept at arm's length. You are obviously being sent a message that you're not part of this and we don't want you part of that. And you know, like that disrespectful relationship then starts to engender ill will. And I think right now we're seeing a fraying of that relationship of trust that had been there for so long between schools and families. And I think it's gonna take really extraordinary measures to rebuild that trust because for every time, you know, we do have good teachers, but then we see videos of those teachers on lives of TikTok who are like, you're right, I'm going to continue to break state law. I know better than you how to raise your children. And I mean, what are we supposed to do, right? You, we as parents, like we try and protect our children from threats and things that we know about. And if we don't know, then our mind jumps to the worst possible scenario. So we really, you know, I think it's coming on schools really to try and make up that, that gap and that trust. Yeah. So as schools continue to hold families at arm's length and push them away and tell them that they have to file public records requests, that they are dribbling out information kind of on a need-to-know basis. How are families supposed to feel supported? How are they supposed to feel that they are partners in their children's education? They're really made to feel more that they are their adversaries, their enemies. And when that happens, I mean, how are we supposed to send our children to school and drop them at the schoolhouse gates in good faith and assume, okay, great, have a good time. I'll see you eight hours later. I know that you're going to you know, come back proficient in reading and writing and mathematics. We have people, we have teachers, we have parents who send us copies of lesson plans, handouts. And it really, I think in some cases, confirms a lot of families' worst fears about what, take, what is taking place behind, you know, behind the doors. And so I think it's, it's incumbent on schools to try and reestablish and rebuild that trust because we have come to the table in good faith, asking and trying to be involved in our children's lives. And at, it feels like pretty much at every attempt, our hands have been smacked away. And we're, when we're being told by administrators, by principals, by teachers, we got this, we know better than you. And so, you know, we feel dismissed, we feel disregarded, we feel disrespected. And um, it's gonna take extraordinary efforts, I think, to rebuild that relationship. So in in response to seeing that, because um, it, it is, it's disheartening when you look at what is happening in our schools. And I've been amazed in talking to so many different people all across the country that uh, that this is not an issue that's specific to just Northern Virginia or just New York City or just Chicago, that literally in, you know, tiny little towns in Oklahoma and Georgia, that across the country, parents are finding out that, you know, their school has a policy that if their child wants to go um, by a, a name that is different from their birth name, that the school will call them that and they'll keep it from the parent. All of these issues. And I, I think parents are just, uh, for one, slowly but surely becoming more and more aware of what's actually happening. COVID, that was one of the gifts that we've talked about with COVID. It's like, okay, the curtain was pulled back. 
But increasingly, I think still parents are being really awoken to the fact of, oh my gosh, what is happening with my child? And obviously a lot of parents have made the decision. It's just not worth it to send my my five-year-old, my 10-year-old into an environment uh, that is pushing this insane agenda. So they've decided to homeschool their kids, um, to put them in private school. For you with your own kids, uh, what have been the choices that you have had to make of, okay, um, maybe these are sacrifices I'm going to make in order to really make sure that that they're protected and that they're receiving age-appropriate education? Yeah, we um, had our children in public school. There's a public, public school um, 500 feet from our house. Um, they went there for a year and they were miserable. They were coming home crying at the end of the day, begging us to not go back. And it was just, I I felt like I was watching my children kind of wither on the Mm. vine. And I was witnessing their, like this love of learning just absolutely dry up. And that broke my heart. And that scared me more than anything else because my husband and I, he's a constitutional lawyer. You know, we can read to them at night. We can take them on field trips. We can take them on vacations to open their eyes to other things, but I don't want them to hate learning. And um, when they were in public school, they were in first grade and second grade. And Arlington Public Schools actually were closed for longer than almost anywhere in the country, um, thanks to right the <laughs> actions of various teachers unions yeah. and administrations. Um, and so when those kids were back in school, I mean, the first graders had never been in a classroom. The second graders had spent their first year, their first grade and kindergarten years at home. And so there were children who didn't know how to go to the bathroom by themselves, how to tie their yeah. shoes. They, didn't, they couldn't sit quiet for circle time. I mean, these, you know, some of the kids in the class were basically feral. Mm. And so there were teachers that were trying to teach children the social skills and coping, as well as making up this vast, you know, gap between learning loss. There were some children who did really well at home. There were some kids that were just popped in front of an iPad for 12 hours a day. And to try and really close the gap between those students, while also addressing some of the behavioral and social issues, I think was really, really challenging. And so we decided to pull our children out. Our children are now in a private Montessori school, um, slightly farther away. So I spent a significant amount of my week in the car. Um, but it's a much more it's a much more personal experience. Yeah. There are two teachers in the classroom, um, whereas in Arlington it was one teacher I think for twenty six chi- children per class. And so the children just didn't have the one on one attention. My daughter had been identified as gifted, and um, the teacher in one of the parent teacher conferences said, you know, she asks a lot of questions and she finishes her work early. And then she gets bored. And I said, it sounds to me like my daughter being gifted is a problem for you. Mm-hmm. Um, and I didn't want her to feel that her curiosity, her you know, subject mastery was a problem and to be ashamed of that, right? Because mm-hmm. we know how these things end up playing out. And I didn't want her to be in therapy like later on for some of this stuff. And so we were lucky that we were able to find a better option, but I searched all around. I certainly don't want to be at a school, you know, 45 minutes away. Um, but it was, it was interesting because we have seen demand for private schooling skyrocket. And I mean, I think back to pre-pandemic, we saw a lot of Catholic schools around the country starting to shutter, you know, they were declining enrollment. It is impossible to find a seat in a private, in a Catholic school in Northern Virginia at the moment right now. Um, We have seen as families have left New York to go down to Florida, um, the Jewish day schools are over capacity, wait lists of hundreds of children long. And so people are now building new schools. And so I think it's really fascinating that we're almost watching this new ecosystem be built out, that the market, the demand that has been unleashed by people realizing that this one size fits all schooling system doesn't meet their family's needs for one reason or another, be it their child's learning style, be it you know the values that don't align. Um, I think is really exciting because we're watching a lot of entrepreneurs now move into this space because 
families can and will go and, um, and, and the money will follow. Yeah. So I think that's really exciting. exciting. Yeah, no. And we, we're seeing this trend also with like products like Target, Bud Light, all of that. It's very encouraging. And people are saying, I've seen it in the, in articles defined as the far right is attacking, you know, the normal products and <laughs> normal schooling, whatever. But I guess um, from your perspective, we have a lot of listeners that are looking for alternatives um, or just ways to, you know, get more involved in their child's education. What would you say to those parents that are like, I really, I don't know what to do. You know, I've been in this community and I have someone or I've had my kids in this school for, you know, a few years now. Like, how can I make sure that they're also not being shunned for being gifted or inconveniencing the teacher because they have these really great qualities um, that make them such a great student? Um, how, how, what advice would you have for getting a little more involved um, in a manageable way for parents out there? Yeah, I think, you know, it's, and, and for me, as someone who is kind of a fighter by nature, it's hard for me to like always internalize this, but um, I, I try to not presume ill will or ill motives um, that, you know, sometimes these teachers really are really overstretched. Um, and so sometimes just keeping an open line of communication, right? And we tell people, start small, ask questions, mm-hmm. right? I want to help my child do a little bit better at school. Um, can you tell me what you guys are going to be reading next week? And you don't have to go in guns blazing. And certainly I think, you know, sometimes that works, but I think you like, I think of a lot of the parents almost as sleeper cells for liberty, mm. um, right? If you're the parent who just asks questions and you're sort of gathering information, um, you don't have to be the one who then turns around and then, you know, attacks the teacher and goes on Fox News and starts yelling. Um, we have a tip line. We have people from across the country who send us information. Um, you know, we have 50 to 200 tips a week. It is astonishing the volume of things that are happening across the country. You said it's, it's, it's not just California and Manhattan. It's in Oklahoma and it's in Idaho and it's in Arkansas and it's in private schools. It's kind of everywhere. Um, but once people know what is going on, what the lesson plans are, what the problems are, that's it's kind of like the first step of a 12-step program then. You can then do something about it, right? Acknowledging that there's a program or a problem and then moving on. And so if you then can, uh, you know, if you feel comfortable saying, you know, I don't really, I have a question about this handout and then have that discussion one-on-one with the teacher. And sometimes... They'll just say, oh, you know, I didn't realize, sorry, it didn't even occur to me that that would be a you know, problem. I won't use it again next year. And that's great. Because what we have seen is for many parents, everybody defines success differently. Mm. Um, some people just want a lesson plan change. Other people are like, you know, this is a really horrible school board member who doesn't have any right being around children. Like they need to not be in their seat anymore. Um, and so just trying to help people and meet people where they are to get to their, you know, a good conclusion for them. Um but certainly, if a teacher doesn't give you the answer you want, then escalate. You know, go to the principal. If the principal doesn't give you the right answer, go to the superintendent. Superintendent, then go to the school board. Um, and certainly, outside pressure, we see that working a lot. Um, of this, of the tips that come to us, almost 100% of the things that people send in, they say they want to be anonymous because people fear retaliation both against themselves as well as their children. Um, and so, I am more than happy to be the bad guy <laughs> nice. and talk to you know reporters like you because. Once schools and districts start getting questions from national media, from local media, hey, we heard that you had this assignment. Hey, we heard that you assigned this book, this speaker. This is how you spent your finite dollars. Um, Then I think right now we're in a situation where districts now realize everything is under a microscope. They can't get away with operating behind closed doors the way that they used to. And for them, I think a lot of the time, they A, didn't realize that there was such a, a silent majority that was opposed to a lot of the activism that's taking place. But um, I think they're starting to realize the juice is not worth the squeeze. Mm. Maybe just get back to the core curriculum, um, focusing on reading and writing and arithmetic and put the check the identity politics at the door. I mean, one of the things the parents were made fun of 
during COVID was that parents were saying, my child is not doing well during online school. And anytime a parent demanded that schools be reopened, we were called names, right? I mean, the Chicago Teachers Union said parents were racist, xenophobic, and misogynistic for wanting to open schools, right? And so, of course, parents were chilled. Of course, parents were cowed. But then we saw those NAEP scores that have come out um, showing how the enormous drops yeah. in um, subject level mastery. Parents knew, we know, we know our children better than anybody. And so at the end of the day, I think a lot of parents are waking up and realizing, if not me, then who? If not now, then yeah. when? The teachers unions are certainly not going to advocate for my children. Apparently the school boards aren't either. The PTAs, right? They're all in it for their own power and their own money. It comes down to us if we want our children to do well. Well, and Nikki, while so many people are so excited about the work that, that you're doing to defend parents, to defend our students through Parents Defending Education, your organization, um, not everyone is super excited about the work that you all are doing. So we need to talk about the Southern Poverty Law Center and their quote-unquote hate map. So um, there's this group, if for those that aren't familiar, called the Southern Poverty Law Center, or SPLC. And every year they release this map that they call a hate map, and they um, identify organizations that they say are are hateful. So it kind of, you know, you go back to the very, very beginning of the Southern Poverty Law Center, and they were actually doing some good work. I mean, they were calling out organizations like the Ku Klux Klan and saying, you know, these groups are, are spreading hate. Um, and then they've just kind of moved further and further and further and further to the left. And now they're off in no man's land on the very, very far outskirts of the left. And so they have just released their updated hate map for the year. And they have uh, branded this whole new category of anti-government groups. And on this list of anti-government groups are a bunch of parents' rights organizations, including your organization, Parents Defending Education. I mean, Nikki, do you think that anti-government extremist describes moms going to school board meetings and asking the leaders of schools not to let boys in girls' bathrooms? It's really, it's so astonishing. It feels, I mean, if it weren't so funny, <laughs> and horrifying right like I, w I was like a little bit paralyzed I was like is this is this punk? like is this a joke <laughs> yeah. because yeah if anything we have been over the past two years we've been around um working with and training parents around the country how to engage with the process to improve schools I mean we have helped over the past year um over 62,000 people submit comments to the federal register in opposition to President Biden's proposed rewrite of Title IX. Um, we helped 12,000 people submit comments regarding a civics grant program that Secretary Cardona wanted to hijack to inject the 1619 project into schools. Um, we filed 28 civil rights complaints with the Federal Office of Civil Rights at the Department of Education. I mean, these are not things that anti-government groups do. We're trying to use the process, teaching people how to testify, teaching people how to speak at a school meeting, giving them lists of questions to ask their teachers, their superintendents, right? Working with the system, not to you know, blow up and eradicate the system. Like that's not what we're doing. At the end of the day, my children still need to be somewhere learning. And so if the whole thing comes melting down, um, then I'm the one who's at home with them. And I was a really bad homeschooler, quite honestly. <laughs> I don't, there are many people out there who are good at it. I was not one of them. Um, but yeah, I think it's just, it's, it's a smear that taking a step back obviously is intended to chill and scare people from speaking out. And I think if anything, that speaks to the fact that this has been such an effective movement, right? We saw the same thing happen two years ago with the National School Boards Association. 
when they had colluded with the Biden administration, they, they worked for weeks in advance on that letter that was sent to President Biden in 2021 that cited the Patriot Act, um, which is horrifying, right, um, to uh, invoke federal intervention in school board issues. We have seen the National Education Association for the past two years, their annual meeting. In 2021, they voted to investigate groups that oppose their anti-racism activism. Last year, they voted to investigate groups that oppose their gender ideology work in schools. Um, and so the fact that the Southern Poverty Law Center, which has a $700 million budget, the NEA, which has a $300 million annual budget, right? Just those two organizations, that's a billion dollars a year allied against parents. Wow, that really shows that they are big scared. Yeah, it's. I think what's interesting too is just from the perspective of, if you haven't checked out the Daily Signal article yet, it's great. And it basically explains that it, it makes no, SPLC makes no mention of the left's aggressive promotion of sexualized material for children in schools and other venues. And I'm sitting here, you know, I'm not a parent, don't have a ton of background with kids, but that seems pretty pretty ridiculous to not categorize those groups um, in at least some capacity on this map, um, although their judgment clearly is flawed. Um, I guess I have to ask, why is there this push by the left um, to, you know, really feed into the polling that shows, I mean, obviously, um, the sexualized material and acceptance and all of that, it's polling well on the left, but why are they so concerned with parents um, Mm -hmm. when they're, you know, when they're simply just concerned for their kids? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, families are, at the end of the day, the bulwark against this enormous government overreach. I think back to a couple years ago, during the Obama years, they put out this video, The Life of Julia. Mm -hmm. And it was, the government will take care of you from cradle to grave, right? You don't need a man. The government will take care of you. The government will school you. They'll pay for your education, universal health care. This is all wonderful, Um, right? And when when there's not a family, when there's not religion, when there's not these, you know, the societal fabric there, pushing back, then you're just, you're just kind of plugged into the matrix, right? You're just, you're, you're there, you're voting for them, you're rubber stamping all of their programs. Um, they don't want people to think for themselves or have their own value system. They want you just to be kind of part of their little program. Um, and I don't want my kids to do that. I don't want my kids to question. I want them to explore. Um, and I don't want them to be reciting talking points. I want them to engage constructively. And you know, independent thought is apparently a very, very dangerous thing these days. Um, And so that's why I think we see so many parents who are fighting back. And I mean, let's also realize the Southern Poverty Law Center also is pushing their own curriculum into schools. They used to call it teaching tolerance. They now call it learning for justice, right? But they have skin in the game Mm. too, right? Like they're, aside from all of their silly programming that they're working on, they're also trying to, so parents who don't want their materials being taught are the enemy. And so there's a little bit of self-serving. It's interesting to me too. You you bring up the independent thought. I immediately thought of the book The Giver, which I read in middle oh, yeah. school, um by Lewis Lowry, Lowry, I think. Um and it literally what you're describing of just plugging them into a matrix, having them serve a purpose, having the government take care of them. That's exactly what this book yeah. taught was bad, you know? <laughs> like this wasn't effective. This isn't a good way to live. And I'm, you know, I'm just wondering does my public school maybe, you know, back in Illinois are, are they still teaching that? Are they still teaching Kurt Vonnegut or, you know, the dystopic yeah. um, authors that I grew up reading in, in Yeah, George you know, Orwell and Fahrenheit 451. And <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. It's like we, we've been warned. We've been warned. Uh, but is this generation, you know, like. But are we paying attention? Like yeah. we have the warnings, but are we paying attention? Wow. Well, Nikki, for anyone listening, um, please, for all of our listeners, go ahead, check out. 
Parents Defending Education. And if, if you're a parent and you need resources, this is a great place to start to have a community also that you're locking arms with uh, and, and just being aware. Um, but Nikki, while we have you here and speaking of the left's agenda, I want to talk a little bit about an incident that happened on Saturday. So of course, it's it's June, and in June, lots of people in Washington, D.C. and in major cities have gay pride events, and there was a gay pride event actually at the White House on Saturday. President Biden, Jill Biden, they were there, and they had all of these activists come in. Um, and during this event, there was a trans activist there named Rose Montoya, and um, along with Rose Montoya and several other trans activists, they filmed themselves topless at the White House. Uh, let's take a listen to that video that they then posted on social media. Are we topless at the White House? All right. So in this video, um, the White House, uh, well, so what you're seeing in this video, it's, uh, don't necessarily recommend watching it, um, but it's this lineup of people that are all topless. Rose Montoya has her hands over her breasts. I actually don't know if if it's a he or a she technically, um, but Rose Montoya has breasts. And the White House issued a statement on Tuesday condemning Montoya's actions and saying that the individuals in the video are not invited to future events at the White House, Montoya kind of shot back in another video saying my trans masculine friends were showing off their top surgery scars and living in joy, and I wanted to join them. And because it is perfectly within the law of Washington, D.C., I decided to join them and cover my nipples just to play it safe. Okay, so that's Montoya's take on the whole situation. But my question is, why did the White House think it was appropriate in the first place to host an event with a bunch of trans activists. And can I just jump in here really quick? Because yeah, I found Kristen. the most fun information that just shows you how much the left ignores law. White House technically is federal land. So Washington, D.C. like mm. laws do not apply. Do not apply. And nudity, um, like, you know, not wearing a shirt, which is nudity. <laughs> nudity. Um, and that is literally breaking federal law and wow. is kind of a serious offense. So I just, you know, found that little tidbit of information. Maybe someone could let the president know because obviously he doesn't. You wonder, um, <laughs> yeah, you wonder if these people will be charged, which I'm sure exactly. they will not be. No, of but. course not. We're too busy prosecuting former presidents. Yeah. But. Oh, my goodness. No, it's, it's really, it's sad. And it's just right this slap on the hand that, well, you're not invited back. I mean... I, I look at, you know, our friends at the conservator who have said, okay, well, you know, there's Veterans Day. Why do veterans get a day? And then there's Pride mm -hmm. Month, right? I mean, where what are we doing for our fallen soldiers for, I mean, my brother is buried at Arlington mm -hmm. and this is what he fought to protect is somebody's right to walk around the White House yard, like topless. Like, I mean, it's just, it's really shameful. I think, you know, of four people who have been to the White House, there are very defined rules, right? There is decorum. At the end of the day, you know, like, the president who was in the previous president, anything there is like, there is an element like this is this, the white house is a big deal. Right. And you're very serious and you dress up and you behave yourself and you know, you're going to be on camera and just the utter lack of decorum and respect for any kind of, I think institution period shows their utter disregard regard for like, yes, of course you want to destroy the court and you want to destroy the white house and you want to destroy politics and social mores in general, like 
normal people just don't get topless on the street period, even if it's legal. Like that's just, I'm sorry. And like, I, I kind of, there is this element of me that kind of wants to bring back like the public shaming of like, we don't do that. Yeah. Like, and I think, right. Anytime you call somebody out for bad behavior, now, like you're, you're accused of being a Karen, but like, what are you doing? Like there were children at that yeah. event, which is a whole separate thing. Right. But like, it's, um, I, it just, it, it is shameful. And the fact that the other side is so blinded by their, like, have to be on the team that nobody could be like, not a single person in that audience is like, what are you doing? Put your shirt back on. I mean, shame on everybody else. That's well. a good point. Mm-hmm. We didn't see anyone in those videos kind of even trying to go up and cover them. And having been to the White House a few times, I got to see the Marine One take off a few times. I went to wow. the Christmas parties. You're so right. Like, that would never have happened in a previous administration. In fact, when I went for my last Christmas um, party, I was forced to wear a mask. And I remember being so bummed out because that was the first time I could bring my family to the White House and they all their photos, they have masks. We didn't even support masks. Like, I mean, to some extent, sure. But um, you're, you're totally correct in how this has shifted. Um, we wouldn't ever see this in Beijing. We wouldn't ever see this in London. We would never see this in any other capital at any other uh, residency. It, it It's just disgusting. <laughs> yeah, I think that's the best way to describe it is disgusting. Like I saw that video and I, I called my dad and he's like, I tried not to throw up. Like this is disgusting. <laughs> yeah, it, it's, it's not appropriate anywhere, but it's definitely not appropriate at the White House. Well, Nikki, thank you for joining us today. This has been so fun to have you. We appreciate your insight and we appreciate the fight that you have to protect our kids, to protect families, and to call in general. I feel like to call society back to back to a standard that used to be considered normal. Uh, so thank you so much for the work that you're doing with Parents Defending Education. Thank you for having me. It's been so fun. All right. Well, stick around because up next, uh, we're going to be bringing you a hot take and, of course, crowning our problematic woman of the week. Well, if you are enjoying this episode of Problematic Women and you're searching for other like-minded podcasts, then look no further than Students Over Systems. It's a podcast production of the Independent Women's Forum. And every other Tuesday at 11 a.m. Eastern, host Ginny Gentles is joined by parents and policymakers to discuss school choice and parental rights. Students Over Systems charts a path to a brighter future by featuring the voices of the creators, advocates, and beneficiaries of education freedom. And as we have just been talking about, that education freedom is so, so critical in this day and age when we need choices. Just like Nikki had the choice to pull her kids out and put them in Montessori school, every parent, no matter their income level, should have that choice. So, Check out the Students Over Systems podcast so you can learn more about the power of education freedom. And if you can't wait for that next episode to drop, then you can search for past episodes by visiting the IWF website. That's IWF.org. Or just check out your favorite podcast app and search for Students Over Systems. All right, Virginia. So I have a solution for the economy right now. Perfect. Yes. Great. We um, need one. I mean, I had the solution for the cows last week. Now, now it's the economy. Fortune reported that Taylor Swift's The Eras Tour is predicted to bring in somewhere around $4.6 billion for local economies. That's the size of Djibouti's entire economy. Oh so basically, Taylor could, you know, buy Djibouti, I guess. Or <laughs> there were a few other African nations, actually. But um, <laughs> we'll stick with that one because it was the closest 
publicist. But it's so interesting to me because this report came out and, and basically said the average concert goer is spending about $1,300 on not only tickets, but food, hotel stays, um, rental cars, etc. And it's funny, this actually, the show came out, or sorry, not the show, this um, report on her shows just came out as my one of my best friends was like, do I just drop $500 on the ticket? Like, there's this FOMO that people <laughs> are feeling. It is. Oh, my goodness. No, after I read the Forbes article that was talking about um, how Taylor Swift has, in many ways, stimulated the economy in all of these communities across America, I, I drove home thinking, is there any way? Is there any way I could possibly somehow get a ticket? How could I possibly get a ticket? <laughs> like, I don't think this is possible. But it is. It's major FOMO that I feel like our generation is having this wild experience that, you know, 30 years down the road, people will be talking about, well, I got to go to the Eras tour and what city you traveled to and how hard it was to get a ticket and all these things. And like, man, I'm missing it out. Yeah. But it's this compulsive I have to be a part of this experience, and I want to be a part of this experience. And it's it makes so much sense that it's generating all of this revenue for local economies because it is this major event. It's not going to Taylor Swift concert is not like going to any other concert. Like The mindset is we are all in. I'm going to go shopping for the brand new outfit. And yeah. my gosh, the outfits that people wear to the Taylor Swift shows, they're insane. I love it. No, I absolutely love it. And um, what I found kind of interesting but also sad <laughs> is that most of these are very left-leaning cities that mm-hmm. are benefiting from Taylor. I'm wondering, you know, she came out as a Democrat a while ago. Maybe that was the purpose. Just kidding. Um, <laughs> but what was so interesting to me is I, my parents just moved out of Chicago um, or uh, the Chicagoland area. I guess. And in this Forbes article, um, they mentioned how Fortune looked at each city's um, hotel capacity rates. Mm. In Chicago, their um, average, or sorry, they surpassed their average and had an all-time high of 96.8% of their hotels occupied when Taylor came. And yeah, I mean, it's crazy. Like, you look back, obviously, the Eras Tour, this is huge. You look back at Speak Now, you look back at Reputation, my favorite personally. (laughs) And you got to, like, imagine what these cities look like with all these costumes, you know? Yeah. Like, it's probably insane. <laughs> yeah. Well, the, I mean, the hot take with all of this and what I have seen some people share on social media is people saying Taylor Swift has done more for the economy than Joe Biden ever yeah. did. And I'm like, well, there, there's definitely a lot of stimulation. You know, I haven't, I haven't run the numbers, <laughs> but I think you could make a pretty strong argument that that's yeah. true, that by by Taylor Swift showing up in all these cities and all these people being willing to come out and spend money um she she's definitely benefiting the economy and arguably more than the president. Yeah, I mean, he should hire her for his Council of Economic Advisors <laughs> at this point, but she probably won't because she's literally bringing in millions of dollars yeah. every night. Yeah, I think they said it, it is literally like after every show, she's just pocketed another, you know, at least a million bucks. Yeah, which and I is think wild. I, I need to dig more into this report, but I, I don't even think that accounts for her sales of like merchandise oh, and gosh. like I'm sure she has CDs and, you know, her old stuff as well, but yeah. I Posters. just can you imagine like perform for three hours and then you're a millionaire like overnight like it's actually insane i mean she already is a millionaire but it's actually insane well i mean as as much as uh i i really am so discouraged by the fact that she has gone off of the far left deep end Mm -hmm. and you do have to give her 
a lot of credit for her her really shrewd business sense. Yeah. She she knows how to run a business, that is for sure. Taylor Swift. Wow. Oh, I can be happy for her for that. She's oh, yeah. giving me some some great music. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And she's stimulating our economy. Good job, Taylor. <laughs> All right. Well, we're going to take a quick break. But when we come back, we are crowning our Problematic Woman of the Week. We get it. With big media bias, it's hard to find accurate, honest news. That's why we've put together the Morning Bell Newsletter, a compilation of the top stories and conservative commentary. To subscribe, just head to DailySignal.com slash Morning Bell subscription or visit DailySignal.com and click on the connect button at the top of the page. All right, now it is that time once again, my favorite time of the week, time to crown our problematic woman of the week. And the crown goes to? University of Oklahoma women's softball team. That's right. We're giving the whole team the crown (laughs) this week. Uh, They just became uh, the first team in decades to win three national titles in a row. That's actually insane. And when that happens, it would be pretty easy for you to praise your own talents as a player. I totally get that. (laughs) Um, You know, you can also obviously contribute it to family, coaches, um, and just the (laughs) inadequacy of other teams, uh, (laughs) frankly. But instead, this team decided to give all glory to God. They, you know, thanked him for their victory. Um, So, you know, looking at it after the victory, three of the team members had a press conference with their coach and a reporter basically asked them how they kept their joy throughout the season. And you you really have to think about that, right? Like you go through all these trials throughout a season and how do you stay motivated? Wow. (laughs) Motivated. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. Don't know where that came from. (laughs) And and that was their answer. They literally just said, God, Um, we're going to play the response in a second, but like, how powerful we Mm -hmm. need that so much and i know you know whenever you like bring god in and really open your heart to him he will pay you back and in leaps and bounds and make sure that you are taken care of i mean obviously it's not a transactional um relationship like taylor swift and her tour but (laughs) he um he is so good and i it's just such a beautiful thing but it was beautiful yeah let's check out the response let's roll it (laughs) Well, the only way that you can have a joy that doesn't fade away is from the Lord. And any other type of joy is actually happiness that comes from circumstances and outcomes. And um, I think Coach has said this before, but joy from the Lord is really the only thing that can keep you motivated, um, uh, just in a good mindset, uh, no matter the outcomes. Thankfully, we've had a lot of success this year, but if it was the other way around, uh, joy from the Lord is the only thing that can keep you embracing those memories, moments, friendships, and all of that. So uh, I would, that's really the only the only answer to that because there's no other way that softball can bring you that um, because of how much failure comes in it and just how much of a roller coaster the game can be. One thousand percent agree with Grace Lyons. Um, I've went through that my freshman year. I. I was so happy to win the college. I've talked about this before, but I was just so happy that we won the College World Series, but I didn't feel joy. I didn't have, I didn't know what to do the next day. I didn't know what to do for that following week. I didn't feel filled, and I had to find Christ in that. And I think that is what makes our team so strong is that we're not afraid to lose because if it's not the end of the world if we do lose. Yes, obviously, we've worked our butts off to be here, and we want to win, but it's not the end of the world because our life is in Christ and that's all that matters. Yeah. Um, 
I think a huge thing that we've really just latched onto is eyes up. And you guys see us doing this and pointing up, but we're really like fixing our eyes on Christ. And that's something where, like they were saying, you can't find a fulfillment in an outcome, whether it's good or bad. And um, I think that's why we're so steady in what we do and, and our love for each other and our love for the game, because we know this game is giving us the opportunity to glorify God. Mm-hmm. And um, I just think once we figured that out and that was our purpose and everyone was all in with that, um, it's really changed so much for us. And I mean, I know myself, I, I've seen so much of a growth in myself with um, once I turned to Jesus and I realized how he had changed my outlook on life, not just softball, but understanding how much I have to live for, and that's living to exemplify the kingdom. And I think that brings so much freedom. And I'm sure everyone's story is similar, but we all have those great testimonies that have really like shown how awesome it is to play for something bigger. Um, and I think that's just what brings me so much joy. And no matter the outcome, whether we get a trophy in the end or not, we're, this isn't our home. And I think that's what's amazing about it is we have so much more. We have an eternity of joy with our Father, and I'm so excited about that. And, yes, I live in the moment, but I know this isn't my home. And um, no matter what, my sisters in Christ will be there with me in the end um, when we're with our, our King. I was just really blown away watching this, and I I took a pause. I was like, well, wait a second. Uh, the University of Oklahoma it's like is that a is that somehow a Christian school and it's like no it it's a public school uh, and yet you have this softball team that is willing to speak so openly about their faith which is pretty powerful so good job to the softball girls at the University of Oklahoma both for their win and for their courage just to say you know what this is this is our joy God is our joy we're going to share it and we don't care what anybody says love, love it, it. All right. Well, with that, that is going to do it for today's episode of Problematic Women. Join us next Thursday morning for a brand new edition. And in the meantime, please subscribe and share. As conservatives, we need your support in the podcast world. So ladies, go ahead, pull out your phone. If you're on your laptop, go to your favorite podcast app, whether that's Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Cashbox. Leave us a five-star rating and review. And if you don't have Taylor Swift tickets, do not worry. I have seen her show probably eight times through on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. (laughs) Just go there. Although, if you can buy a ticket, good for you. (laughs) But have a great week, guys. Problematic Women is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. It is a product of The Daily Signal produced by Lauren Evans and Virginia Allen. And be sure to follow Problematic Women on Instagram. We produce Problematic Women in remembrance of our dear friend and former co-host, Bree Payton.